Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we speak to data science leaders making a significant impact out in the world today. And they tell us about their journey, their lessons learned, interesting applications of machine learning and AI, along with their views on data strategy, data governance, data quality, team building, etc. This podcast is designed to help you take your career to the next level. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here today. And I hope that you are having a wonderful week. Today, we speak with June Dershowitz. She's the director of analytics at Twitch, and she's also in the board of the Digital Analytics Association, which she tells us a little bit about her role there at the end of the episode. June has been working in Silicon Valley for about 20 years and has fantastic insights to share with you guys. I hope that you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed the conversation. And if you do, please share it with a friend. I'll be super, super grateful if you help us get the word out about the podcast. Thank you so much. And here is the conversation with June. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with June. June, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am so excited to be speaking with you today. How are you doing? Thank you for inviting me here. I'm doing great. How are you? Very good. Very excited. Thank you. I wanted to start by going sort of back to your early days of your career. Mm -hmm. What would be one of the first applications of data science or data analysis that really got you excited about the field? What was something early on in your career that really pulled you in where you said, this is for me? Uh-huh. Well, I fell into it by accident. I have a bachelor's degree in math, and I studied theoretical math. The less it had to do with reality, the more I liked it. And it took me a while before I got to, in my professional work, something where I was like, oh, this is where my math skills come in handy. But I'd been working in academics for a little while. I was working for a mathematician after college. And then I got this idea that I wanted to move to San Francisco and work for a startup. I was living on in Philadelphia at the time. And I moved to the West Coast and I was looking for a job as a front-end engineer because that's what I'd been doing previously. And I thought that I wanted to do more of that. And there was a lot of web development going on. This was 1999. I got invited in for an interview with the startup and they looked at my resume and they said, they said, oh, like you've got web development skills and database skills and math skills. And it seems like you're good at talking to people. We think you'd make a good analyst. How about that? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I guess I could try that. And if I don't, I quit. And I gave it a shot and I loved it. It wound up being the thing that I've stuck with over my entire 20-year career living and working here in San Francisco. And from that startup, it led to a series of, of other really interesting roles, all centered around data and analytics and all perfectly bringing together the skills that I have working with data and databases and math and customer empathy and all of that together. And I've just been really happy to see that there's been this increased focus on that kind of work and demand for people who have this kind of skills that I had that I didn't even realize were valuable at the time. Incredible. And what led you to want to move to San Francisco? God, you're going to get me to talk about goats. So it's always a matter of time when I meet someone before I talk about goats. And for you, apparently it took about five minutes. So... <laughs> So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest portion of the U.S. in Oregon and uh, on a goat farm. My mother was a farmer and my father was a software engineer at Intel back when it was a startup. This is a long time ago. I know. And so I grew up in Oregon. I actually I went to college there. I went to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, where Steve Jobs hung out for a while. Not at the same time as me before me. And then after college, I got a job working for a mathematician in Philadelphia. And he had this uh, research project 
project that was funded by the National Science Foundation called the Math Forum. And it was a website for getting math teachers and students and uh, professors together to talk about math on the internet, which is a really a revolutionary thing to try to do in the mid-late 90s. And so I was living there and it was fun because I had just uh, completed my bachelor's degree, but I still got to audit math and computer science courses when I was working for him at Swarthmore College just outside Philly. It was a great place to be. And uh, I love being surrounded by math people too. But at a certain point, I said, I'm done with academics and I want to go into industry. And it seems like there's a lot of opportunity right now. And so since I was from the West Coast, I thought I want to I move back to the West Coast to be closer to my family. And I didn't want to move back to Portland, Oregon. I'd already lived there. I uh, wasn't really interested in Seattle. And I just sort of looked at the map and said, San Francisco, that's the place for me. I'm going to do it. And I went there and this was super bold. I can't believe that I did this. But I moved to San Francisco without a job and without a place to live and with my boyfriend, who I'm still with. We're not technically married, but we're still together after all this time, who was the guy I met in math class, by the way. So we moved to San Francisco. I know. It all comes out. So we moved to San Francisco. We were looking for an apartment. We were looking for jobs. We were just sort of sleeping on our friend's couches and counting on something working. And amazingly, we got a two-bedroom apartment downtown San Francisco, and we got jobs at startups within in the first couple of months. And so it was just like accepting on faith that it was something that we could do. I don't even think I had any money. I don't even know how I thought I could do that, but it's somehow, somehow it worked out. I don't recommend this as a choice. I think these days you can get paid relocation if you play your cards right. I didn't even know what paid relocation was. And that here I am so <laughs> still after I just hit my 20 year anniversary of living in San Francisco and I'm still here like a cockroach. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. It, it definitely sounds like you found your place. So well, well yeah, done. I did. How was it going into startups back then, and how has it changed over time for you? Yeah. Well, there was some of this interesting thing going on where I was a web analyst, and uh, my first startup was a place called eGreetings, which was free greeting cards online, right? And it was a company of 200 people who were devoted to this cause, which is crazy. And we went public when I was there. It didn't pan out so well. And then we got acquired by American Greetings, which is a traditional greeting card company. But the thing about being a data person at that time was we just had to figure it out on our own. There was not, there were no books. There was no stack overflow. There was no one who came before us to help show us the way. I was making it all up from scratch. And it was also my first real job. So all, I came in, I, what I knew SQL and um, I shall date myself, but Perl scripting, Unix shell scripting. And I got away with those skills. And, you know, we were working with like first generation web analytics vendors, which I was a client. And I think the predecessor to Nielsen. So there was some sort of industry benchmark for web traffic at the time. And But some of the things were just the same. It's like, how do we reconcile the Nielsen numbers with our first party behavioral tracking? Because the numbers don't match. And like, why can't I add up unique visitors over time? Like, why am I counting duplicates? Well, you're counting people. And then I would get a question, well, like, what's our gender breakdown? How many men and how many women are you? I'm like, you don't know that. Because we, we didn't even have any authenticated users. It was all anonymous. And I was frustrated at like uh, the lack of sophistication of my customers at the time, they didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what I was doing. We were all just figuring it out. And so fast forward to today, and I still work in a setting where it's highly ambiguous. There are lots and lots of unknowns. And even though we have a, like a higher base level of understanding of what's possible, and we have much better tools to work with, still some of those basic questions are things 
that I still wrestle with my stakeholders all these years later. But I will tell you at the time, back in 1999, we would get an update of our web analytics data once a month. And then we would just like work off of that. That one. Yeah, that's all we had. It would like um, crunch log files and we'd get new reports once a month. It was tiny data at the time, but it was still super slow. And I was very patient. What surprised you the most? What was the most unexpected thing that you found going into startups? I think the amount of license that anyone in a startup is given to solve problems, especially for smaller companies, people wear many hats. And if you see a problem and you feel like it's something that you could take and own and solve, you can just do that. I think that that is um, is really powerful and is something that you don't necessarily get at the slower moving companies or larger companies unless it is explicitly something that is cultivated. But I've worked for both small and large companies over the course of my years and always have good memories from the smaller ones. Probably the smallest was an analytics consultancy that I joined and I joined the leadership team, but there were only 12 people on staff at the time when I joined and 22 a few years later when I left, I wound up getting acquired by Ernst & Young. It was a pretty successful boutique firm, but I did everything. My job title at the time was vice president of analytics, but I was like the vice president of everything that needed getting done. And we all were. That's great. Is that something that that was natural for you to adopt that mindset or that approach? Sometimes people, and maybe in larger organizations or in other places, sometimes they feel like they should just worry about their patch and that they need to be given permission to think about their company in a holistic way. How did you find that transition? I think when you're in a smaller organization, it's much easier to get the holistic view across everything that's going on. And so there might not even be that much of a patch that you can own without extending all the way out to the edges. I mean, I guess when I was at the consultancy, I owned relationships with particular clients. So maybe that was my patch. But like our portfolio of offerings was something that we went all the way across and helping to develop the sense of what it was that we provided that potential clients of ours might actually want was a fun and interesting and valuable thing to get to be involved in. And I think it's certainly possible at larger companies too. My current employer, Twitch, is owned by Amazon now. We were acquired five years ago. I joined three and a half years ago. So it was post-acquisition, but before the company had really grown. And so when I got to Twitch, there were 400 employees, which for me is sort of on the small end. Some people would say that's a lot, but that was small. And today we have more than 1,500 employees. And so it has been exciting to have seen this company through this period of great growth and to help it evolve and change. And I think that one skill that I've gotten to use time and time again is just stepping up to own things, saying, hey, this is a thing over here. This is a challenge that we need to overcome as a business. I feel like I'm empowered to solve this problem. I'm going to solve this problem. That is a fantastic way to be in your work. Has there been times where you have felt maybe not very certain about moving into a particular direction or owning a piece of work? And can you walk us through how that process works for you internally in choosing to move forward or not and what happens as a result? 
Sure. So the phrase business intelligence is something that means lots of things to lots of people, or who knows, we all have different ideas of what it is. But prior to coming to Twitch, it was not something I had ever claimed to have owned outright. But when I got to Twitch, my initial assessment of the work that needed to be done here was, oh, there's a component of this that's a business intelligence problem to be solved. But how do we shape our data into meaningful data sets that are consistent and easily consumable and answer important common business questions that we have across our growing company? And how do we expose those data sets in data interfaces that meet the demands that our very data-driven company has? And I'd never solved a problem like that. I think in recent years, I'd worked for larger companies where there were whole divisions devoted to that, and I was a customer of theirs, and I trusted them to just go and solve that. And at older companies especially, those are problems that had already been solved. But when I came to Twitch, it was like, well, this is Greenfield. This is for someone to solve an area where I was like, okay, even though I have never filled this role before, even though I've never done this thing, I feel like I have some skills that I have already in my portfolio will help me manage through this successfully. And so I took it and did it. In this case, it was like doing things like a vendor selection project. Like you gather the requirements, you say, um, here are the use cases that we're trying to solve. You make a long list and then you turn it into a short list and then you gather people together to reach agreements and then you get funding. And while I knew how to do that generally, because I'd done that for other large software systems previously, I'd never done it in the business intelligence realm. But as I looked around at the colleagues that I was working with, I realized that none of them had actually gone through that. And since I'm, let's just say, further along in my career, I can draw on more experience that's like, okay, I can pattern match off the things that I've done that are not exactly the same, but kind of similar in order to achieve the end result that we're all hoping for, which was a better self-service analytics environment for all of the demanding customers that we have in our company. And I'm proud of what I've been able to accomplish. Now I can say, aha, I did that too. Because I think like one risk that we have as data people is potentially getting pigeonholed into a thing that we know that we're good at and staying there because it's our comfort zone. And for me, for a a long time, it was, well, I knew a ton about Adobe Analytics and I was a consultant who was doing Adobe Analytics implementations for my clients. And that was like a sweet spot for me. And I could have continued to exist in that realm and have been just fine. But for me, it's taking a look at what I'm doing and what we're really, the value that we're delivering to our business as a result of that, whatever that thing is, and generalizing that so I can solve different problems and bigger problems and newer problems that might not have existed a few years ago. And that's where I get a lot of satisfaction in the work that I do professionally and what I want to keep doing. That is absolutely brilliant. And it's so interesting. I'm in a very similar, similar situation to what you just described um, at work, where in the past, for me, the main focus had been to solve specific advanced analytics problems, mostly as a consultant, and also create data products or products from data. And now in the role that I'm in, I'm very similar to you. I see opportunities in the data space, owning the data for an organization where there's a need for business intelligence and In that same spot of saying, well, I think I have the skills for that. I'm going to take it on and own it. And we're going through that that process where we've now selected a vendor. We're building the new warehouse. We're Mm -hmm. starting to get users in. So it's great to hear that your experience around that evolution is great. And tell me, where do you see now the skill sets around business intelligence? Where does that sit 
compared to some of the other roles that have come up, some recently, some in the last decade or so, but around obviously data science, data engineer, where does data analyst, where does the business intelligence skill set lie and and, um, what are your views on all the different roles now? I really think that over time, as companies have increased their investment in data-related initiatives, we've seen just this explosion of a diverse array of data-related roles in companies. I think maybe these things have already always existed in some form or another. Maybe, you know, I would have called a data scientist a statistician in the past, or, you know, maybe the work that I was doing, maybe I would have been called a data engineer sometimes. But now I think that there's just this massive spectrum and whether that's data scientist, and which I would actually split out into you're a data science generalist who goes across all the kinds of things you might want to do with data, or you're more of a specialist who's like a research scientist whose work product is like a 16-page research paper that might change the perception of the executives who are shaping business strategy. Or it might be an applied scientist who's basically a software engineer and pushes production code. Or it might be a data analyst who helps product managers understand what their KPIs should be and manage A-B testing for them. Or maybe you would call that a data scientist and I would call it a product analyst. Tomato, tomato. We can't even agree on these things. But for the business intelligence realm today, I think that there's certainly an aspect of data engineering that's important although it's right at the edge. So we have data engineers here at Twitch who build software systems that, say, enable data pipelines or data workflows for other data staff. And then we also have data engineers who do things like build trustworthy data sets for people who are out the company to consume. And those are sort of distinct things. I don't think we don't yet have a clear definition, at least within my own company, around like what data engineer actually means. And as a result of that, we have a very broad definition of what a data analyst means, where it's all the way from like building data pipelines and making data architecture decisions through instrumenting tracking to doing QA, to making reports, to doing analysis, to running A-B tests, to doing insight and recommendation. That end-to-end is very broad and it's hard to get a data person who excels equally at all parts of that process that I just described, right? And so depending on the size of the company you have, if you're a super, super large company, maybe you have a specialized data analyst role that does not include things like building data pipelines. And you have a specialized data engineering role that's like building pipelines and making aggregates and is narrow and sits like immediately adjacent to a data analyst. Or maybe you're like Stitch Fix, where they say every data scientist is responsible for their own data pipelines, right? Which I think is rare, but there are just so many different ways of shaping the work that we do. It's not immediately apparent to me when I meet another data person, what kind of data person they are. And I think the the way that I'm in job titles are absolutely meaningless. You cannot tell what a person does from their job title right now, especially for data-related roles. And it's killing me. But the way that I get a better sense of what a data person actually does is I ask them like what it is they actually produce and deliver. What is it? How are they using their data-related skills to drive impact in their business? And if they say, I make dashboards, then I say, okay, they're, they're that kind of data person. And if they say, oh, I sit on a, a software engineering team and I help write our, our recommender system. Okay, that person's an applied scientist. In that way, I'm able to categorize them in my own mind. But I don't think we have consensus right now, consensus within our own businesses and certainly not consensus across the organization in, or across the industry in um, what different data-related roles actually are. 
It's true, and it does make it quite tough to both hire people, train people, develop, mm -hmm. and also have industry-wide conversations around what is required for the different roles and where different roles should go. It's hopefully something that will start to be fixed or cleaned up a little bit so we can have some agreements, but it's a tough one. It is a tough one. And I think as, I, as all of us are maturing our data and analytics practices in business, I think that we're getting a more clear understanding of what the different components of that puzzle are, right? And what kinds of people that we need to employ and ratios, like how many data engineers do you need to serve a certain size um, audience base of analysts and scientists? How many product managers can one uh, data analyst support? Because if things get out of whack then you and you have an imbalance, then you struggle to meet business needs, right? So if you have one data analyst, one product analyst, and seven product managers, those product managers are not going to get what they need from that data analyst, no matter how good the tooling is, right? But it can be very expensive also to say we're, for every product analyst, we're going to pair them up with a product manager so that that product manager gets all their data-related needs met. I would say that that's overkill and it's expensive. So what is the right mix? And do, do we have people in our companies who are designing our data organizations to account for this? Not always. Not always indeed. That's very interesting. And how does it work with your teams? I guess, could you give us an overview of your team structures and how you connect and interrelate with the larger business? Sure. This has changed over time. It's just been really interesting. And it's something that even before I joined Twitch and years ago in the industry, this is something that as practitioners and also consultants, we're always looking at for what is the most appropriate organizational design to support a data team that lives up to their promise. And one thing that I've learned is that it can really depend on the data culture that you have in your own company. Uh, and if there is incredibly high demand, as there is in my current company, then um, you might need more uh, staff on hand to make all that a reality. Also, the sheer size of the company, right? And if you're a small company, you might be able to get away with more with uh, data science generalists who are okay with wearing many hats. But as you grow, it might make sense to specialize more. So when I joined Twitch, we only had a central data team. So that was data science, analytics, and data engineering all together. And I was actually joining a team that was all data science generalists. I came from a background of being a data analyst slash data engineer slash product manager for data things and program manager for data things. And so I spoke like a slightly different language from them. But I was certain that there were challenges that I was uniquely qualified to solve. So we evolved into, okay, the data science generalists focused a little more on research science in our case, and just like the very beginnings of applied science at that time. And I identified the need for data analysts to sit alongside data scientists to do like more of like the shorter term operational stuff, consultation with business stakeholders about what they ought to be measuring, uh, making sure instrumentation and data pipelines were built and making reports and dashboards and doing simpler analysis. All of that was something that was sort of under-supported. And so I built and led a team of, at the time, 10 data analysts who were supporting the, that need as a shared services function across our entire company. And so our data staff grew quickly as our company was going quickly around it as a centralized function. And then we got to a certain point in our growth where we just were still not able to keep up with demand. And what we chose to do at the time was move to an organization 
operational model that was hub and spoke. And so we have a smaller centralized team that is data science analytics, data engineering. And then we have multiple distributed teams of analysts and scientists who are more closely aligned with business stakeholder groups. So product analytics, marketing analytics, content analytics, and so on throughout our own company. And so those distributed groups grew and were sort of specialized around certain kinds of analytical work and also began to sprout up pockets of applied scientists who were working to support things that we were doing with like fraud detection and trust and safety and recommendation systems, right? As we were becoming more mature as um, like a product and a platform, we needed these things. And so our central team now, and I lead the central analytics function, which in total is uh, business intelligence, data governance, data quality, and also um, what we call an analyst center of excellence, which brings together all the data analysts throughout our company so that they can learn from one another and share best practices, and also brings together their managers who may not have their roots in data to help sure their man- make sure their managers know how to do things like performance evaluation and talk about career progression for the data staff who work for them, which is one of the things we have to compensate for when you have when you go with a hub and spoke model, you might wind up with one lonely data analyst who is supporting an area of the business where they are working, reporting to someone who is basically their customer who may not understand where they're coming from. And so making sure that lonely analyst has other peers that they can learn from. And whether that's like a code review or like consents check my analysis or help me write an email to the executives or whatever that is that that analyst needs to do that they don't feel comfortable doing solo, that they can get support from analysts and other portions of the business, right? You don't necessarily face that challenge if you have a centralized analytics and data science org, but that always doesn't make sense either because in some ways, if you're completely centralized, you may be not as connected as you ought to be with your stakeholders and your customers. There's no perfect answer. It's very true. There's no perfect answer. I agree. But I think that the maturity level of the organization when it comes to data, different maturity levels require different methods or different um, structures for the team. And I think that the hub and spoke model shows a higher level of maturity, of data maturity within our organization mm-hmm. compared to a centralized team. And I think that you've solved a lot of the problems that come when people transition from the centralized team to the hub and spoke model. One particular one that I love that you described is teaching the managers of the analysts about mm-hmm. doing performance evaluations for data people, even though data is not their primary focus of the manager. They're more on the business side. along with creating the community. The one thing I'll add, though, is it can take more work on the part of an analyst or scientist who's in a distributed role to think about where they want to go with their own career, right? Because say that someone is a data science who works in marketing and is doing attribution modeling day in, day out, and that's all they do. But maybe they want to go do an experimentation for a product team. Like if they want to make that transfer, if they're in a central org, it could be as easy as cross-training with someone who's on their team. But if it's a hub and spoke model, that's an internal transfer. And it takes more work on the part of the person who wants to make that change and the people around them who manage them to say, yeah, the next step for this this person to grow in his or her career is to actually move into another part of their company so that they can learn this new skill set and to be open to that. Because if they're not open to that, then that marketing data scientist is just going to go get another job. 
Correct. That's great. I definitely wanted to ask you about that. How do you manage those career trajectories and transitions for people in your teams at the moment within the Hub and Spoke model? So the thing is, a lot of it has been very new for us. We have grown very quickly in recent years. In uh, 2018, we hired 22 distributed data analysts. So I oversaw the process because I saw it coming when we changed organizational models and we made it possible for business leaders throughout our company to speak up if they wanted to hire their own data staff. Everyone did. And all of a sudden we had all these roles out there. So I was like, all right, we need some structure here because we should have a common job description out there. What is a junior level role? What is a mid-level role? What is a senior role? How do we evaluate technical competency for each of these people? What is a good hiring panel look like? Who should be involved? How do we make sure that we're hiring people who are going to be successful? Here. And then when we have that sort of tidal wave of people entering our company, how do we make sure that they're adequately onboarded so they feel supported and can hit the ground running? And so that has been our challenge so far. And in another year, if you ask me, what have I done to ensure excellent career progression options for the all of the data staff we have here at Twitch? Hopefully I'll have a better answer. But for right now, it's, wow, how can I help all these people who've been with our company for less than a year be successful in their new roles. Many of them, as I talk about it, have not even been through their first performance evaluation yet because they haven't been here long enough. And that's the fun part of like working at a fast-moving company. And Twitch is absolutely not a startup anymore. It's a mid-sized company inside of Amazon. But like, I really find the pace of our business exhilarating. Oh, definitely. And you guys are definitely doing things that are very advanced for a lot of compared to most organizations, I would say. Yeah. So when you were bringing in that large number of analysts, distributed analysts during such mm-hmm. a short period of time, how were you giving them the context from the data space, as in mm-hmm. data platforms, skilling, bringing mm-hmm. them part of the community while they were, I assume, and maybe it's not the case, but I assume that they were directly sitting with the business so they could get the context mm-hmm. directly from the business. How did you balance those two areas that need to feed the new people? Well, one thing that we've done fairly successfully is assign each new person a buddy, like a technical buddy who can help them answer all the technical questions they have that they may not have someone sitting near them who can answer. And that person has been there for them. Another thing that has been absolutely critical is documentation. I know this is not the sexiest thing, but it's so important because, you know, we have a very large and diverse data sets that we're expected to be able to work with. And it can be daunting to come in and see the massive volumes of data that we have, the variety of data that we have, and to be expected to work with that effectively on short notice is tough. Even if we successfully hire people who we think are going to be have a good chance of coming in and being able to find their way, we still owe it to them to say like, here, we've written down some of the things that you must know about this data that you we're expecting you to work with. Something that we've done recently that I'm really proud of and I think has made a difference is we've stood up a data catalog, which is data about our data. I'm not going to name the name of a vendor. We did choose a vendor, although um, there's open source technology out there that I think is really interesting and has a lot of potential too. But it's a really neat space. So the thing about a data catalog is there's this like automated base of scraping everything that you can know in an automated way about your data lake and your data ecosystem, whether that's usage logs or schemas or what have you, or lineage 
uh, which you can infer from that, to have this automated base. And then on top of that, have like a wiki where you can crowdsource all kinds of information that humans know, um, lore about the data. And maybe that is like formal documentation that says, hey, this is what this data table is actually for. Or maybe it's just like, a, I thumbs down this and three other data people thumbs down this because it's terrible. Don't use it. We actually were doing that in analyst meeting this morning where we we're make, trying to make kind of a party game out of saying, hey, let's look at some of our most common data tables and um, make some remarks on the, each of these tables about what we think the level of quality of the tables is. And the work that we did there in like 20 minutes of just saying like, oh, I think this is fit for use. You know, uh, this is a good table to use and endorsing something. Something like that is incredibly valuable to any new data person who's going to come to work at Twitch in the future. Because so when they go to explore that table for the first time, they can say, oh, look, seven people endorsed this table and they say it's fit for use. That gives me more confidence than I would otherwise have if I come in and I don't know anything about a table until I start querying it and seeing what's there. And that can take a long time and can be error prone. So that's a, something that we're doing to kind of preserve all of the data related lore that we've collected over the years and will continue to collect. It's fantastic to be crowdsourcing that and keeping it mm -hmm. always as a living document. And it's awesome. Could you tell me about the, the data quality journey that you've had in your role? It's obviously hugely important and often it requires a lot of changes within the organization that are outside of the scope of our direct teams. How has that journey been for you? I love to talk about this. And if anyone's listening, feel free to put it on double speed because I'm going to talk a lot. So this is sort of the one of the reasons why my job at Twitch even existed at all. There were some problems that were identified with data quality and there was kind of like a shared ownership situation and um, leadership said at a certain point, we need someone who's going to own data quality as a problem space. That led to the job that I applied for and got. And I looked at that and I was like, oh, I can totally solve that problem. So the problem was when I got to Twitch, like in many places, data quality was all about incident response. There'd be a problem, there'd be a disaster, we would clean it up, we would maybe write something up about like what happened, and then we would move on. And then a month later, there'd be a disaster, we'd clean it up, etc. And nothing was really changing, except one thing I did when I came in was I established a postmortem process for data quality incidents of a certain size. And it wasn't like the data staff who were conducting the postmortem, it was the engineering team that was responsible for the incident. Once we identified them, they wound up doing a postmortem to say, what happened here? What can we do to prevent this from happening in the future? Just not place blame, but have a good discussion about how we can avoid those kinds of incidents in the future. Not that's a specific incident, but like the generalized case. And that was incredibly helpful. But the thing that I did um, with respect to our data quality practice that I'm really most proud of and I want to see adopted in other places is turning it from a reactive to a proactive discipline. So that chasing disasters thing, I knew that that was not something that was sustainable and I wasn't willing to staff a team with people who are just chasing disasters. I didn't think that was the right way to go about things. So we set out to make quantitative measure of data quality and we called it defect rate. And it's basically, if you take a data set, say the so like the most important data that your company relies on. And you set up some rules that you say, this is what I expect well-formed data to look like. These are the expectations I have about this data. Defect rate is basically the number of defective rows in that data set that say failure rules tests divided by the total number of rules. And so along with a guy on my team named Ryan, shout out to Ryan, he and I developed defect rate and put that in place at the beginning of 2018. And with the size of the data set that we were looking at, it was our company's most critical data, and the size of the rule set that we had, which at the time was 19 rules. And they were things like 
for every record of behavioral data we get, time, the timestamp must not be null. Clearly, a thing happens at a time, we need to have a timestamp. So if time is null, that's a defect. For example, we had other ones like that. So um, we set a baseline for defect rate. It was 5% at the beginning of 2018. And over the course of the year, we would find problems. We had alerts on our rules and stuff. And we corrected some latent problems that were there, or rather we like got the engineering teams who were responsible for the defects to create correct those problems. And we were able to drive defect rate down over the course of the year. And we ended the year at less than 0.5% defect rate in that same data set. And so we were able to look at this and make a chart over the course of the year and say, this is how we drove defect rate down. This is how we improved the level of data quality for our company's most critical data set. And that, I think, was like a trust building thing more than anything else. Like people could say, okay, we know that this group out there is paying attention to maintaining high quality data where it makes, where it's most important for us. And so the beginning of 2019, we increased the scope of data that was in our critical data set we were looking at, and we increased the number of rules. So we expanded out to, I think, 48 or 49 rules from 19. And so we started again, we started the year at around 5 or 6% defect rate, and we're slowly working on driving that down over time. And you could imagine how this could become a continuous improvement initiative where every year you look at like what's the scope of your managed data set that and what's your set of rules that describe expectations you have about that data. And then you, you work on ensuring the highest possible quality over time. So we still have incidents, but now it's not our customers telling us about incidents. Usually it's caught by alerts that we have set up that are related to the rules that we've established. That's the way we hear about things now. But in the beginning, it was all customer complaint. By customer, I mean data consumers throughout our company. But hey, this looks wrong to me. This looks broken. What's going on here? And then it was like, oh God, no, what's going on? It's much better shape now. That is a fantastic turnaround. When you created the alerting metrics, were they applied to historical data or was it only new data coming in afterwards? So the way that we set up our alerts, and this is something that I I think is totally subjective, but what we looked at was we looked at five-week range historic, and we said same day of week, same time of day, rolling five-week average. And then we looked at the bands above and below that average for that particular data point. And so if we got something that was a spike that was double, what was going on here? And it could be maybe there was a big esports event going on that was driving up traffic on Twitch. But we could get some false positives that way. But what if it was 50% lower than we expected? What's going on there? Maybe engineers pushed a change that broke our tracking code. That's super, super damaging if it is our most important engagement metric. So that that was what we were looking at to sort of, um, when we first established that, actually, I was actually just talking to Ryan about this earlier today, as we're we're coming up with rules in a new domain, it can be useful to say, if you have a log of incidents that have occurred in the past, and you say, you know, here are these seven things that happened over this three-month period, and each of these seven things is something, and it's an incident we wish we would have caught with alerting, can you take your alerting mechanism? and apply it back over that range and have it, if it's configured well, it will only alert on the things that were actually incidents and will not give you any false positives. That's what you're aiming for. It's an art because you don't want to miss things that were truly important and you should have caught, but you also don't want it to be firing constantly on false positives because you have spiky data. I think we've got a pretty decent balance now. I love this approach so much. Thank you so much for sharing it. Have you considered rolling it out to other parts of the organization, not for data quality, but essentially for them to create alerts around the data that they consume, for them to get information about how it's changing? 
there are two different ways we're working on on scaling what we've done. And the whole system and framework that I just described is powered by a person, a person who wrote some code. And so it doesn't it doesn't scale all that well. But one thing that he uh, Ryan did was say, okay, you know, here are the alerts that he created, the framework in which he created them. He can take that and say, teach other people in the business to make their own alerts that they can then monitor. And the way we have it set up, alert fires, it goes to a Slack channel that ping the right people who need to pay attention to that. And that works well for us. But uh, he has successfully taught several other groups within our company, whether that's a like a distributed analyst or a product manager or an engineering manager or something who's just like, wow, I see what you're doing over there. And I want to be able to monitor my own data too, because I want to know when there's a spike over here or we had a problem in the past and we didn't catch it quickly. We want to be able to do that on our own, even though it might not be in the what I have prioritized as our company's most critical data sets, maybe locally it's super important. And so we've been able to effectively teach people in other parts of the organization to use alerting on our own in the same way that we have used it for ourselves centrally. And the second thing I'll mention is that the ultimate logical conclusion of the system we have, I think, is turning it into something that is just built by our data infrastructure team into our data pipeline. The dream is upon ingest, any single thing that we're passing into our data pipeline has a set of uh, rules and expectations associated with it. And if it fails to uh, meet the threshold for rule compliance, maybe it gets sandboxed or alerts go to the producer of that data to say, hey, your data is failing the quality check. So they're the ones who are empowered to do something about it, right? And by data producer, I usually mean engineering teams whose systems emit data. Depending on the kind of company you work for, data could come from somewhere else. But for us, it's usually these systems. So if our data pipeline had something built into it that would naturally check all of these rules, then I could imagine sort of a Oh, my dream of compliance reports, but like a company-wide report that shows like every engineering team that is a producer of data and then the defect rate of the data that is flowing into our data pipeline that they are responsible for, right? And you could roll it up to the executive level and you could say, oh, in this VP's org, we have a 27% defect rate. And in this VP's org, we have a 3% defect rate. And if everyone has visibility into that, then you can turn it into something that's like, oh, this is an expectation of me as a data producer to get more of a sense of ownership on their part for ensuring and maintaining high quality data. So that's where I want to see it go. I want to see it turn into a product. That's and by so the way, great. you can hear me say analyst or scientist in there at all. Analysts or scientists would benefit from this, but it goes solely into the hands of the groups that are producing the data that we all work with. I love that vision so much. I also wanted to ask you about your journey on the data governance side. How did that look when you first joined Twitch? And what has been some of the evolution during your, your time there so far? So data governance is another one of these areas that has, I never really owned it before explicitly, but I saw that opportunity at Twitch. And even though I came in to solve a data quality problem, my initial thought was like, look, data governance is the means by which you achieve high quality data. And that's what I want my focus to be instead is data quality is like, oh, it's just a reactive thing. It's just like cleaning up after messes. And I didn't want it to be construed that way. And it, again, it, like so many things in the data realm, data governance can mean lots of things to lots 
lots of people. There are people who think about it in terms of PII and legal compliance and risk and GDPR and stuff. And you know, while it is it's super, super important, the, the challenge that I was faced with when I came to Twitch was more about building and maintaining trust in our data for our data staff members, but also people throughout the company who needed to work with data to do their jobs, but weren't sure how much trust they could place in anything they were using. And so that's like, how do we ensure common definitions for the things that are matter most to us? If I write a report over here and someone else writes a report over there, do we get the same answer? If not, why not? And data quality is a component of data governance too. So the thing I've learned a lot of things about data governance in the past few years. And one thing that I believe strongly now is that a good deal of it is just about people feeling like they understand that their role and responsibility when it comes to data ownership over the entire life cycle of, of data, whether, you know, that's, as I was mentioning earlier, on point of ingest, when data first exists, who owns that, who feels responsibility over that, what do they do if something is out of whack, all the way down to like, say, an analyst who's responsible for taking raw data and transforming it into aggregate data. What is their responsibility? What do they need to do as someone who's handling and shaping the data there? And then data consumers, this could be a product manager or an engineer or an executive, and they're using data. What's their responsibility? And in my mind, if they see something that's wrong, if they say this data looks wrong to me, it's on them to say, here are my assertions about what well-formed data looks like. And here's why it's failing. Because if they just silently say, oh, this data is a mess, it's garbage. That doesn't help us. That doesn't help anyone. It's that feedback loop of saying, hey, this is what I expect from the data and it's failing. And this is the problem that it's creating for our business. It's a real problem. The more that people can voice that in an environment where everyone has a fairly good understanding of what their role and responsibility is, then you have the possibility of improving that. And I think that's what cultivating and maintaining trust is about. And for me, that's what data governance is about. But I will just add that my team and I are, we have this, oh, it's so nerdy, but I'm going to say it anyway. We have this informal data governance book club. We're on our second book right now. We've selected books that have been published in the last, say, decade, maybe more recent than that. And we take turns reading it. And then we have a discussion about um, what we learned. And it's not always like, oh, yes, we agree with this. We need to follow this person's instructions to a T. But like, what is it that we can take out of that to apply within our own business? Because one thing about my own company is, as I mentioned, super fast moving and fluid. And like we, there are lots of things we haven't really defined yet. And it maybe is our data governance practice probably looks quite a bit different than if we were a well-established multinational bank. And I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong, but the tactics that the bank would use may not be tactics that would work well for us at our own company. So I will just say the, the first book that we read was called Non-Invasive Data Governance. And the whole idea is you're already doing data governance today. You just um, might not know that you are. And what can you do very subtly to formalize it a bit, to streamline it? And it's a little subver subversive, I would say, but I think that approach works better for us than saying, oh, we're going to form a data governance council and we're going to say that these people are data stewards and we're going to have these expectations of them. I think people will just run screaming if 
if we apply that level of process and control to it. But uh, how can we apply it in a lightweight way that suits us as a business and helps us achieve what we're trying to achieve, which is trust? And finally, one just quick thing I'll mention is one little success story with data quality. So we use Slack day in, day out. We started a data quality Slack channel and we were worried at first that it would just be a bunch of people drive by saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is broken, fix this. And it didn't turn out into that at all. I mean, people would come and say, I think I queried this table and, and it looks weird to me, but we now have a hundred plus people who are in that channel who will intercept any kind of person who comes in to say they have a problem to report and help them find an answer. And these aren't people who are on my team. They're just like interested folks throughout business who want to be helpful and have some knowledge. And that's, I think, a good success story is getting a whole army of people who naturally feel some sort of responsibility for maintaining trust in our data. I love the focus on trust, Mm -hmm. on lightweight, on community assistance. Great tenants, I think, of your approach to data governance and data quality. What was the second book in your book club? So the first one was Non-Invasive Data Governance. It's the one by John Wadley. I think it's called Enterprise Data Governance. Very good. I've been dying to ask you, I guess, more more of a global question about Mm -hmm. some of your traits that you mentioned early on that I've been able to see come out so strongly in all of your answers. And you said that when you first moved to Silicon Valley, you were picked up because of your strong background in maths. But you said Mm -hmm. you're good at talking to people and you have empathy. So I wanted to hone in into those two, the talking with people and the empathy. And I want to ask you, what role has those two strengths played in your career and how have they helped you achieve what you've achieved? How have they been able to help you get to where you are? What are your reflections on the impact of these two qualities in your career? That's a good question. I'll handle them separately. So yes, I like to talk to people. I'm an extrovert. I realize this is rare to to be a tech person with a math background and still love to talk to people, but I I do. I'm one of those people. Um, And I actually, there was a new guy who started in my company recently. He's a data engineer. And everyone said, June, you have to meet Sid. He likes to speak in public. I think he's an extrovert too. And I met Sid. I said, are you a people person? And he says, yeah, you too. And I said, yeah. And he's like, high fives. It's hard to get data people to high five you, but he did. But it's rare. And for me, I think that where that has really served me well is beyond my day job, I've always been really involved in the professional community around data and analytics. And early on in my career, I was really sort of hunting around for people who did what I did. And it was hard for me to find them. And I had a few false starts there. But one thing that I did that I was really proud of in about 2005 or 2006 was we started a meetup. And I started by accident, just like it's sort of the trend. I was on this like email list of data people. It was a global list. But I said, hey, I'm June. I live in San Francisco. Anybody wants to get together for a beer next Wednesday night to talk about web analytics, meet me. I got a bunch of people coming out of the woodwork to say, yeah, June, I'll meet you at this bar next Wednesday. I was like, oh my God, my internet friends, what have I done? And then other people (laughs) in different cities said, and there was this one man in particular, his name is Eric Peterson. He's wonderful. He said, I think I want to call this Web Analytics Wednesday. Hey, let's do it everywhere. And in that first month, I think we had events in six different cities and people were getting together to have beer with other people to talk about Web Analytics. I was just trying to solve my own local problem, which was to meet people who did what I did. But then it became this thing. And so now it's like still happens. And it's 
this global thing that has involved more than, I think, 10,000 people. It doesn't happen in San Francisco anymore, but it happens still. And it happens in Columbus, Ohio with great regularity for some reason. But I get to claim co-founder credit along with Eric Peterson, who really took it and run with it. But if I hadn't been an extrovert and hadn't been someone who really liked to get out there and talk to people, I would not have done that. But doing that really put me in touch with lots of people that I learned a ton from and have stayed in contact with over the years. That's the talking to people part. I could say more on that, but I won't. And the customer empathy part is something that I think comes from, I mean, it's always good to be kind of naturally curious about what the data that you're using actually means and what it represents. And I know that there are all kinds of people who work with all kinds of data sets and some of them like are not people data, but I've always loved like people behavior data. How can I look at data and use that to describe things that are happening in the world? For me at Twitch, that's like customer interaction with our live streaming video platform, which I find fascinating. Like what are the trends in popularity of video games today and um, the communities that have formed around them on Twitch? But I think being curious about what the data that you're using actually means and connecting that to um, in a corporate setting, the customers of your business is not always something that, that data people are great at. I remember at my last job, not not Twitch, but prior to that, I was working for a company that had as part of its operations a call center. And I didn't really understand call center data at all. It was kind of the edge of what I was looking at, which was lead generation. But the call center was like this critical point where the customer was interacting with a representative from our business. And one of the most impactful things that I got to do was, it was in a different city, but I flew there with a colleague of mine who's also a data person. And they let us listen in on uh, call center representatives' calls with customers. And uh, so we got to patch in and listen to the conversation that they were having with the customers. And it led me to just this new level of understanding of about what our businesses' customers were trying to achieve and what our company's representatives were saying for the, to them in response. And it gave me just this new level of understanding when I went back to the office later that week to say, oh, I'm looking at all of this quantitative behavioral data, but now I can connect it with that voice that I heard on the phone and the thing that those people were trying to achieve. And now I get to tell that story and say, yeah, it served me well. I work for Twitch as part of Amazon and Amazon is very much a customer centric company. And so that customer mindset is something that's woven into everything that we do. And you've heard me over our time together talk about like my customers and I'll say my customers are data staff at my own company or business stakeholders uh, who are sort of that outer ring of people who use data in my company. Or I'll say my customers, meaning viewers and broadcasters on Twitch, all of the millions of people who do that. But I think it's always important to, in the work that you're doing, and especially data-related work, keep your customers in mind and work backward from what you want to achieve for your customers. That's empathy. Amazing. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask you about some of your other, not interests, but maybe roles around outside of your work. So mm -hmm. you mentioned that starting the Web Analytic Wednesdays was mm -hmm. sort of something that, that happened accidentally and that you were involved for some time and, and then it sort of took off. Do you have anything else at the moment that you're doing outside of work? I do. So I'm on the board of directors of the Digital Analytics Association, which is a member organization for data analysts that focuses on professional development and community. And it's about 5,000 people and it's global. I've had a longstanding relationship with that organization. It came into existence 15 years ago, called at the time the Web Analytics Association and rebranded about a decade ago into the Digital Analytics Association. And what's crazy is a decade ago, I was actually on the board. It was right after I'd been involved in Web Analytics Wednesday and was doing this community organizing and I got nominated to join this board. And I was like, 
really? You want, you think I have something to add to this? I believe I was one of the younger board members. I was also, I had to write their maternity leave policy because I had a baby while I was on the board. And now my baby is 10 years old. So I did that for four years. I served as a board member and then I took a step back in part so I could focus more on my family. But also I was still a member, but I was just in the background. And then this spring, the nominating committee came to me and asked me if I would like to rejoin the board. I ran for re-election and I got elected and I joined the executive committee. So I'm the vice president elect this year. Next year, I'll be president. And it's just incredible to be back with this understanding of the history of the organization and helping prepare and shape it for the future, which I'm really passionate about. So a couple of things to mention were um, we have a mentoring program that's a part of the DAA that I think is super valuable. So if anyone listening here would like to be a mentor or a mentee, that is something that comes with membership and is new in the past couple of years. And I think it's been really successful. And we're also on track to host our first conference. It's called the DAA One Conference, and it's going to be in Chicago, Illinois, October 23rd and 24th of this year. And then there'll be talks. There's an award ceremony. There are lots of networking events. Again, it appeals to the extrovert in me, but hopefully to everyone. I'm just really excited to be a part of that outside my day job. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for everything that you do. This has been an absolute blast. I only have one last question for you, Jern. Um, uh-huh. And I want to ask you, what is a piece of advice that you would like to give the listener something that could help them uh, in their careers? Sure. The advice I have is for people who are newer entrants into the data and analytics space. I talk to quite a few of these people who come to me and say, oh, I want to break into this field. How can I do this? And what I have taken to telling them is you got to be more specific than just saying that you want to be a data scientist. Think about with more specificity, what is it that what kind of problems do you want to work on and uh, what kind of challenges do you want to solve? And how can you speak about that in a very concrete way? And I think the more that you could say, I want to be an applied scientist who builds recommender systems. That is very clear. Or I want to be a product analyst who helps product teams launch and optimize consumer-facing products. The more that you can talk about that, the more likely that get, you're going to get connected to something that will actually allow you to get your foot in the door doing that. If you just say, I would like to be a data scientist because I hear it's a hot job these days, let's not, it's not going to fly. <laughs> that is fantastic. And a great note to end on. Yeah. June. I can't thank you enough. That was absolutely brilliant and wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, your insights, your learnings. It's been really eye-opening and also mind-blowing to hear about everything that you've been doing. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you for inviting me here. It's been a really fun conversation. I hope your listeners enjoy it. Definitely. Thanks so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.